Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Good morning, everyone, and uh, I just want to welcome everyone this morning, those who are here and those who have joined us on live stream. What a joy it is to come together on a Sunday morning at the house of God and to be able to come as a family and to worship together. And uh, the weather being so nice, and I really thank the Lord for what the Lord is doing in our lives. And as we begin today, even before I give you the introduction, I just want to read verse number 10, which, uh, sorry, verse number 22, which is a very key verse here. He has now reconciled in his body our flesh by his death. I just want you to remember this. He has now reconciled in his body our flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So as we prepare our hearts and our minds to get into this text today, let us know that he has reconciled. So welcome, church, uh, to our tour de Colossians. Hope you're enjoying the, the journey so far. Well, here we are today. We are on the sixth day of our tour, and today we are just going to look at three verses. Verse number 21, 22, and 23. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to chapter 1, the book of Colossians, and we're going to look at just three verses. But let me give you an introduction and give you an understanding so that we have a clear uh, picture as we dive into this passage. We are looking at a little church in a place called Colossae. And this church apparently was, uh, was started by a, a, a servant of God by the name of Epaphras, who came to know the Lord through the ministry of Paul when Paul was in Ephesus. Now, this church had a small problem because there was this heretical uh, uh, teaching was taking place and, and, and there was a threat, there was an attack in the church. When Epaphras saw this, he was really concerned and he goes all the way to Rome to see Paul who was in the prison. And he's going there with, with, the, with, the, with the hope of getting some kind of a counsel from him asking him what he should be doing. So Paul is writing this beautiful letter, an epistle, a letter, and he sends it through another servant by the name of Tychicus so that this letter can be read and received and received and read by the saints in Colossae. Now the whole thing about this heretical teaching stems from three elements. One is a false Greek philosophy and Judaistic legalism, and then ceremonialism. Church, if you really be observing the things that are happening today, those are the three areas that brings about this heretical teaching even within the churches today. So the, the whole point here, or the whole issue here, is the denial of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. So obviously, Paul's response, as we look at this passage, as we keep, keep studying, 
is to defend or to establish who Christ is, to talk about his supremacy, to talk about the all-sufficiency of Christ. So in this epistle, when Paul begins this epistle in chapter 1, 1 and 2, he was just greeting the saints in Colossae. And verses 3 to 8, he was giving thanks to the Lord for their faith in Christ Jesus, for their love for the, for the other saints, and for the hope that they have in, uh, um, in heaven. And verses 9 to 12, Paul actually writes a prayer. He's, he's saying, I'm praying for your spiritual growth. And Paul spells out some, some growth markers, and we looked at that. And as we move to verses 13 to 14, Paul is speaking about God who does the qualifying. He qualifies us to become partakers of the inheritance of the saints. And he says that that particular act has happened through the redemption and the deliverance. It's happened only through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And last Sunday, we looked at verses 15 to 20, where Paul writes about the supremacy of this person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul talks about two areas. He says he's, he is supreme over his natural creation, which is the universe, and he is supreme over the spiritual creation, the body. Now, having spoken about who Christ is, Paul is now reminding the saints in Colossae how their lives have changed in and through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So with this introduction, church, let's read verses 21 through to 23. Now as you look at verse 21, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 23. And it says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, talking of, of the redemptive and the salvific work of the Lord Jesus Christ, in these three verses, Paul breaks it down into three components. Number one, he says, he talks about their proba uh, reprobation, is about their life before Christ, in verse 21, who they were. In verse 22, he talks about the redemption, how God redeemed them, who they are today. And in verse 23, as a result of this, he is talking about their responsibility, what they should be doing. So this is what we are going to look at today, verses 21 to 23, their reprobation, their redemption, and their responsibility. Church, as we go through this, this message is not only for the saints in Colossae, it's also for you and I, for every believer. Now, we know that the Colossian church was in danger. They were in danger of being wrongly influenced by some false teachers. So Paul's corrective measure 
was to extol the person and work of Jesus Christ. So last Sunday, we looked at in verses 15 to 20, he lifted Jesus up as the sovereign creator of the universe, the head of the church, and he was worthy of preeminence in everything. I want us to look at verse 20. He builds his case further by defining what this Christ has done for the saints. Verse number 20. And this is what he says. And through him, and through him, him meaning who? Jesus Christ. To reconcile to himself, meaning God, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his, that is Jesus Christ, cross. So what Paul says, that Christ's blood on the cross is the means by which God reconciled all creation to himself. So today's text, verses 21 to 23, expands on the subject of reconciliation. So Paul is saying that the saints in Colossae, who enjoy the blessings of reconciliation, just like you and me, who are enjoying the blessings of reconciliation, we have a responsibility. You might ask, to do what? He says to continue in our faith, in the true gospel. So first, what we are seeing here, Paul reminding them where they were when God intervened in their lives. As I said, their reprobation. Who they were before. He says, we all were alienated from God because of our sin. Let's look at verse 21 now. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil things. Now, talking about our reprobation, who we were before we came to know Christ, in this particular verse, we can see that Paul highlights three issues which applies to us also. Number one, he says we are formally alienated. That's what they're seeing here. We were once alienated. The second point, he says we are hostile in mind. And the third one, he says, we are we doing evil deeds, simply meaning we are engaged in evil deeds. Let's break it down. Formally alienated. Our alienation from God was due to two things, church. On God's part, God is completely holy. And God has, settled, has a settled wrath against all sin. He has no tolerance for sin. He has a settled wrath against all sin. On our part, we have within us an inborn selfishness and pride which causes us to ignore God who created us and to pursue our own ways. See, these are the two things that we have. Therefore, there is alienation because God in His holiness cannot have fellowship with us in our sin. So church, here's the problem. God cannot compromise His holiness, and we cannot eradicate our sin. So the word alienation comes from the root word alien, which means a foreigner or stranger. So to be alienated from God means that we have made ourselves 
strangers to God. Why? Because of our sin. Another word for alienation is estrangement. Now, estrangement is an alienation of affection. I'm sure you have heard this term commonly used, estranged husband, estranged wife. To be estranged is to have, the, have lost the former affection of fellowship once shared with another. Now, warring spouses become estranged when they cannot work out their differences. Rebellious children become estranged from their parents when they refuse to be guided or disciplined. Now, we know the story of Adam and Eve in, in Genesis chapter 3. They became estranged from God because of disobedience. So people have been estranged from God ever since. That is what Paul is talking about here. So when Paul wrote to the saints in Ephesus... He talks about the same issue of alienation. I want to look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1, verse 18. See what Paul says here. Paul says that he describes the unbelievers as this. He says, darkened in their understanding, alienated. You see that word alienated here. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And I wanted to pay attention to the next part. Why did this happen? Paul explains, due to their hardness of heart. Church Paul gives the reason for the alienation from God is due to the hardness of heart. Now that's exactly what Paul is even saying here in the epistle to the Colossians church. See how God, Paul presents their state prior to knowing Christ. Let's go back to verse 21. And you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Paul says here, sin begins in the mind and works its way outward that leads to alienation from God. Paul says, you were hostile in mind, another version says, engaged in evil deeds. Church, it means that we are hostile toward God in our thinking, which results in disobedient actions. Now, Jesus said the same thing. He taught that all sin begin within our hearts. In, in, uh, when he was talking to the disciples in Mark chapter 7, this is what the Lord says, what comes out of man that defiles a man, and from within, and he goes on to explain, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, and so on and so forth. And in verse, 20, verse 23, he says this, All these evil things come from within and defile a man. What does it mean, church? What does this mean? It means that dealing with my sin is not just a matter of cleaning up my behavior. Let me repeat that. Dealing with my sin is not just a matter of cleaning up my behavior, the external. It is not wearing a new suit, a new blazer, new jacket. It's actually, it is a changing of my heart. The internal 
we need to go through an open heart surgery. Because the problem that we are seeing outside is actually stemming from what we have, the dirt that we have inside. In our natural state, we are incapable of pleasing God. As a pastor, there are many instances I have been summoned to address familial issues or conflicts. I've heard in many cases, uh, they say, Pastor, my husband is abusive, he's short-tempered, he's unloving. Or someone might say, my wife is mouthy and she is a spendthrift and she is disrespectful. My son is wayward and is addicted to porn. My daughter is, lives a promiscuous life. My sibling is into smoking and drinking and drugs and swearing. And the list can go on. So then we look at the means of resolving it. And you call the pastor or somebody, can you please come and talk to him? Can you please come and talk to her? Because they are a disgrace to me. Church, you know very well, I'll be the first one at your door to give you the support that you need. But here's my question. When I come to you, what do you think I should do? I'll give you two options. A, do I come and talk about the evil deed that they are doing, that they are struggling with, which are only symptoms? Or do I come and talk about the hostility of mind, which is the root cause for their evil deeds? Do I talk about the external, or do you talk about the internal? If you're addressing the external, you're only addressing the symptoms. If you want to eradicate that, you need to talk about the internal. You need to pull that tumor out. You need to take that cancer cell out. You need to take that problem out of your heart. We may be able to clean up the outside. We can tell them how to behave in public. We can help them put on a mask to cover. But if you are not able to clean up their hearts, what good is that service church? We can easily put on a tuxedo on a pig. But its pig nature makes it still want to wallow in the mud. That is why in every struggle in life, church, we should first see if our relationship with God is right. Have we alienated ourselves from God? The reason we do evil deeds is that our minds are hostility to God. Simple logic, church. You don't, meet, don't need, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure this out. In order to avoid evil deeds, is anger, malice, abuse, drugs, and the list can go on. Our mind should not be in hostility to God. Then we'll not be alienated from Him. So the solution to every problem is to have your heart right with God. That is why you should be plucked to the church. That is why your child should be active in the Sunday school. That is why your teenager should be growing in, in the teaching of the Lord with the other youth in the church. That is why the young adults must be committed to being part of the family, learning the things of God. That is why you should be part of the Bible study group and the prayer group. That's, that is why you should belong to a body of Christ. 
Because the solution is there, but we need to be disciplined to seek after God before it is too late. You may wonder, will it ever happen to me? Will my problem be taken away from me? Will it ever happen to my family? Will I ever be free from this bondage, Pastor? Left to your own, I want to tell you, that would never happen. It'll never ever happen. I'm not saying that's what Paul says. But I just want to comfort you today. I want to tell very openly, fear not, church. Fear not father, fear not mother, fear not children. He has reconciled us. He can break every fetter. He says, come to me, all those who are weary and burned, I'll give you rest. That's his promise. He is a gentleman, he is standing at the door. He said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in, uh, come in to him and dine with him and he with me. He will not force himself into your life. That's what Paul is talking about here. So having spoken of their reprobation, who they were, now Paul is moving on to their redemption, who they are today. Look at verse 22 now. Paul says, he has reconciled, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Let me reassure you, church, as Paul speaks so boldly, the problem that you, are, that you are struggling with, that issue that brings upon shame on your life, that cause has been surgically removed by him, the heavy lifting is done by God himself. That's what you're seeing here. He has now reconciled. Paul says to the Colossians that from the desperate position of verse 21, he says, the Colossians have been rescued. He says, he has now reconciled. That's what he's talking about here. He did it. The word reconcile bears the meaning, putting it right with someone or something. If you recall the study we had in the book of Ephesians some moons ago on reconciliation, here are the nine things Paul, Paul is saying. Just for our... Here we go. There are nine things God has done for us in Christ in, in terms of reconciliation. He has blessed us. He has chosen us. He has predestined us. He has made us accepted in Christ. He has redeemed us. He has abound toward us. He has made known unto us. He has given us an inheritance and he has sealed us the Holy Spirit. That's what God has done in Christ no, church, I want you to understand in all this, he has done it. This reconciliation was initiated by God. He has done it. This great doctrine of reconciliation emphasizes that God took the initiative in reconciling sinful people like you and me to himself. It is not dependent on our efforts to get right with God but on God's action centered on the sacrifice of his son. So here's the good news, church. The reconciliation was initiated by God. The great doctrine of reconciliation 
that God took the initiative in reconciling sinful people to himself. The Bible says that Christ reconciled us to God. Hear me as I read Romans 5.10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. We were enemies. The same message that you're seeing in the book of Rome. We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. When Paul wrote to the saints in Corinth, he says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. When Christ died on that cross, he satisfied God's judgment and made it possible for God's enemies, that is us, to find peace with him. Church, our reconciliation to God then involves the exercise of his grace and the forgiveness of our sin. The result of Jesus' sacrifice is that our relationship has changed from enmity to friendship. I love this passage that you find in John 15, 15, where the Lord says, I no longer call you servants. And he goes on and he says, instead, I have called you friends. Wow. Friend of God. What an honor it is. Some of us may not have any friends in this world. But I want you to know that he is your friend when you are reconciled to him. So Christian reconciliation is a glorious truth, church. We were enemies, but now we are friends. We were in a state of condemnation because of our sins, but now we are forgiven. We were at war with God, but now we have peace that transcends all understanding. That's what Paul is talking about here. So having spoken about the past life of reprobation of the saints in Colossae, now in verse 22, now listen very carefully, Paul is drawing their attention as to why he has done that. Affirming that the reconciliation happened only through the atoning death of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul goes on to explain this. Why does God reconcile us to himself through Christ's death? Let's read it. You know what, church? This must make you shiver. This is what he says. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you and me holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Wow. This is a wow moment. In order to present you and me, the wretched sinners, good for nothing, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So why did God reconcile the saints in Colossae? Why does God reconcile even you and me today? In order to present you before him holy and blameless. So God's goal in reconciliation is to present us before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So God's aim is that on that judgment day, you will stand before him perfectly righteous. Wow. Don't you feel elated, church? Don't you, don't you want to jump up and say, my goodness, me, a wretched sinner, 
Yes, sir, you heard it right. It's a wow moment, such a filthy, dirty, undesirable, sinful character like me to be conferred with such an honor. It is certainly a wow moment. And in Jude 24, he, he, he says this. Jude is saying that to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. Church, let's be honest about this. It's a rare thing to know someone whom you would describe in this world as blameless and beyond reproach. You may not even say that about your dad or mom or, or, or son or daughter. You'll never say that. You may say they are great men or great women, but never blameless and beyond reproach. But even your assessment of anyone is seeing only a part of their outward behavior, isn't it? We can never judge anyone fully because we don't know them. But imagine to stand in the presence of God who knows every hidden thought and every motive we have ever had. He has visited your secret closet that you're hiding from the, most, the person closest to you, yet to be declared holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Sounds impossible, church. As I was preparing this, I, I, I always let my imagination run riot, and I, and I bring this picture to the theater of my mind, and I was thinking, you know, when I appear before the Lord, the Lord is going to say, Ronald, you are holy and blameless and above reproach. Imagine God telling this to you. So how can this be true? But it is church. It is true because Paul and Judah are looking at the final result of our sanctification. Please understand this. There are three aspects of sanctification. If you don't get into the, it's like a train. If you don't get in at the beginning, you're not going to get off at the end. Three aspects of sanctification. First is the positional sanctification. When we are reconciled to God through Christ's death, He sets up apart to Himself. We are clothed with Christ's perfect righteousness and seated with Him in heavenly places. This is the beginning. This is what we call the salvation. Everything starts there. For us to be able to enjoy this blessing of we being presented in the presence of God as holy and blameless and above reproach, it starts with salvation, reconciliation. That is a positional sanctification. Second thing is if we have entered into the train, into that compartment, you move to the second one, which is the progressive sanctification. What does that mean? As you walk with Christ daily, putting to death the deeds of the flesh and, the, and growing in obedience, we become increasingly holy, blameless, and above reproach. We have not reached there yet. We are beginning to sin less and less and less. That is the progressive sanctification. This is never perfect in this life, and this is a progressive event. And then finally, we have the perfect sanctification, the ultimate sanctification. That is when we die or Christ returns, whichever happens first. Our sin nature will be completely eradicated. This is perfect sanctification because we will be like Jesus. Look at 1 John 3.2. John is writing, Beloved, now we are children of God. To whom is he writing? To the believers, to those who have been reconciled. 
and it has not yet been revealed that we shall what we shall be but we know that when he is revealed look at the next one we shall be like him we shall be like him we shall see him as he is bearing no sin wow that is god's ultimate aim in reconciling us to himself through christ so you might say wow this is so comforting pastor this is what a great news it is i don't need to worry about i have accepted my uh, jesus as a personal lord and savior let me just have a party time now i am perfectly i'm going to be sanctified so can i just go around and do my live my normal life no you can't that's what paul is talking about in verse 23 in light of this in light of this reconciliation in light of the fact that one day you will be presented in the presence of god as holy righteous and blameless and above reproach there is a responsibility for you that's what paul is talking about here verse 23 the responsibility let's look at verse 23 first if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which i paul became a minister so paul mentions in this verse i see there are two aspects of our responsibility of course paul says if indeed you continue in the faith now paul is not expressing doubt here because it is by faith that we have been saved paul is not expressing any doubt here but he is giving us a warning that's what paul is doing here paul was confident that these new believers would not be carried away by these false teachers because we see the passage even in the book of philippians he who started the good work in us will see to its completion until the day of christ he is present with us he is going to see to its completion so paul is saying here the test of genuine faith is that it preserves by holding to the gospel that's what paul is saying here in in verse 23 as i said there are two aspects of the responsibility as reconciled people you and me let me spell it out first and then i'll explain to you number 1 is verse 23 the, the 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 second part that you see be stable and steadfast and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard that's the first one be grounded and steadily growing in the hope of gospel do not shift from the hope of the gospel hold to the true gospel especially in the face of false teaching that's the first responsibility paul is saying and the second he says proclaim the apostolic gospel to all people let me break it down now so the first thing he says here the first responsibility as reconciled people is that we should be stable and steadfast not moved away from the hope of the gospel the foundation for the christian faith is the gospel of jesus christ we know that let me ask you a question are you clear on the gospel is every one of you seated here and listening from home are you clear on the gospel 
If someone asks you to explain the gospel, how would you do that? If I ask you to turn to the neighbor, turn to the person seated next to you, and explain it in 60 seconds, could you do that? Can you support it with the specific scriptures? That is what Paul means here when he says, stable, having a clear understanding of the truth of the gospel. There should be no doubt, no questions about what you believe. Let me pose a challenge to you, my church family. I want you to take this challenge personally and seriously. Maybe you should ask everyone in your family to write down what they understand about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone in your family. Ask them to write it down. And once they have written it down, sit together as a family and ask them to read aloud to each other. Test and see how they are intertwined with the scriptures. Ask questions to see if there is clear understanding. I'll tell you, church, you'll be surprised. You will be surprised. As believers, we have to lay the foundation of a basic understanding of the Bible and its core teaching, especially the gospel. Why? Because, like what happened to the little church in Colossae, the enemy always attacks. Attacks what? The basic truths about the Trinity. How many people have questioned you on that? The person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The inerrancy of the scriptures. Salvation by grace through faith alone. The hope of Christ's second coming and the need for holiness and other key truths. How many people have questioned you? Are you cornered at that time? You are not able to respond? Because as we saw happening in, during the time of this, of this episode, there was false philosophy, uh, philosophy and legalism and ceremonialism have been the constant threats and even still they are the threat for the Christian community. So church, if you are not grounded and steadily growing in biblical truth, you will get blown away and blown around by every wind of false doctrine that comes along. When you know the truth, you can spot the false teaching easily. That's why Paul says here, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. What does he mean by that, not shifting? It means not to be swayed by false teaching and should hold to the true gospel, especially in the face of false teaching. We know that throughout the New Testament, there are a number of warnings against false teaching. And almost all false teaching attacks the essential of the gospel. That's why you need to have a clear understanding of the gospel. That is why you need to be firmly grounded. You must be stable and steadfast. Jesus warns in, in Matthew 24 that in the end times, many false prophets would arise and lead many astray and that most people's love would grow cold. Church, we are in the last days. We are in the last days. We have been tricked by different philosophies today that even begins to question some of our fundamental faith. But here's what Jesus said at the end in Matthew 24, 13. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. How do you endure to the end unless you are stable and steadfast? 
in the gospel. So perseverance in the gospel is the test of genuine faith. So encouraging the saints to be stable and steadfast, now Paul moves on to the second one, or the last point, he says, he wants the saints in Colossae to proclaim the apostolic gospel to all people. Look at this, the second part of it. Paul adds concerning the gospel which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, I Paul, became... In other words, he was made a minister. I'm sure Paul is exaggerating to make this point here. He says the one true gospel is spreading everywhere. It's proclaimed in all creation under heaven. One true gospel. It's the same gospel that Epaphras preached to you and I preach everywhere I go. The one true gospel has universal appeal. Church, although we need to be very sensitive and wise in how we communicate the gospel to dif in different cultures, but we don't have to modify it or tone it down. The term that you have here, become a minister, it is not a prestigious title. Please don't get it wrong. It is not referring to a special class of ordained clergy. The term minister here simply means a servant. That's what it means. If you have believed in the gospel, you are a servant of the gospel. So obedience is not optional for servants. And when Paul wrote to the saints in Corinth, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, he implies that if you know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, you are his ambassador to this lost world. What does an ambassador do? He is pretty clear about his country that he represents. We are all expected to be clear about the gospel that we represent, that we believe in. So you must see the world around you as your mission field and pray for wisdom to take advantage of every opportunity. So in conclusion, church, Paul is reminding these saints in the little church in Colossae who are facing this heretical teaching. First in verse 21, he was reminding them as to who they were, their repro reprobation, how alienated they were from God because of the hostility in their minds that lead to evil deeds. Let me pause and ask, how about you? Are you still in that state of being alienated from God? Are you? How do you know that you are being alienated from God? Simple question. If your life is taken away today, how confident are you that you'll be in heaven? If you have an element of doubt, you have been alienated from God. Because only the child of God can enter the house of God. And to become a child of God, you've got to believe and you've got to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1.12 Second, in verse 22, Paul tells them that it is God who reconciled. It has nothing to do with you. It is done in and through the death of the Son, Jesus Christ. The purpose that he reconciled you, and Paul puts it beautifully, so that he can present you and me holy and blameless and above reproach before God. You cannot do it on your own. He has reconciled it. Here's my appeal, church. If we have never been reconciled to God by trusting Christ's sacrifice on the cross, 
That is your urgent need. That is your urgent need. Don't delay because you cannot repent too soon because you do not know how soon it may be too late. In verse 23, he says, in light of this blessing on reconciliation, we have a responsibility. And he lists two of them. First, he says we should be grounded and steadily growing in the hope of the gospel. If so, are you holding to the true gospel, especially in the face of false teaching? That's my first question. Can you spell out the gospel today? Clearly. Intertwining your, your narrative with the scriptures. Secondly, Paul is saying, are you proclaiming the apostolic gospel to all people? If you are grounded in the faith, your assignment is to lay out a plan and get started. Church, I'm going to encourage you. Here's a homework for you. The best place to start is this. Write your own salvation story. You know, as you know, I've been counseling many couples these days who are preparing for marriage. And one of the assignments I give them is to write your own salvation story. Don't just tell me your story. I want to see how your story is intertwined with his story, the good news of the gospel. Allow the scripture to interact with your story. The truth of the gospel must be revealed through your own salvation narrative. Feel free to send it to me, church. I love to read it. Every one of you, I would encourage you. I would also encourage you to reach out to one of the elders. They'll help you to polish up your salvation story. Because that is very important for us, because that story, you can share your faith intentionally with someone at every opportunity you get. Because people can be offensive when you go and undermine their faith system. But nobody will be offended when you go and talk about your salvation story. And when that story is intertwined with the scriptures, the word will do its work. Church, if you can't explain the gospel, get some training. Pray for opportunities and do it. As Paul encourages saints in Colossae, remember church, we who enjoy the blessings of reconciliation, we are responsible to continue in the faith of the true gospel. To become servants who proclaim to the world until he returns or we are called home. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can come together and we can learn from this epistle that Paul has so beautifully written to the saints in Colossae. And as you see, O oh Master, that these were people whom you have set apart. You have reconciled them. And Father God, as we even examine the life before, every one of us can identify ourselves with the saints in Colossae. We were in a state of reprobation, but you, by your grace, by your love, that you redeemed us, and you have given us a responsibility. A responsibility to hold on to the faith, to be clear in the gospel, and to be able to share the gospel with those around. So help us as we engage in this mission. So that on that day, 
as we stand in the presence of the Almighty God, that you're going to look at every one of us and you're going to call us holy, blameless, and above reproach. We thank you, we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.